The Book of Annandale, 1, by Edwin Arlington Robinson, read for LibriVox.org, by John Paul Nelson. Partly to think, more to be left alone, George Annandale said something to his friends, a word or two, brusque, but yet smoothed enough to suit their funeral gaze, and went upstairs, and there, in the one room that he could call his own, he found a kind of meaningless annoyance in the mute familiar things that filled it for the great's monotonous gleam was not the gleam that he had known before. The books were not the books that used to be. The place was not the place. There was a lack of something, and the certitude of death itself, as with a furtive questioning, hovered, and he could not yet understand. He knew that she was gone. There was no need of any argued proof to tell him that, for they had buried her that afternoon, under the leaves and snow, and still there was a doubt, a pitiless doubt, a plunging doubt, that struck him, and upstartled when it struck. The vision, the old thought in him, there was a lack, and one that wrenched him, but it was not that, not that. There was a present sense of something indeterminably near, the sole clutch of a prescient emptiness, that would not be foreboding, and if not, what then? Or was it anything at all? Yes, it was something, it was everything. But what was everything? Or anything? Tired of time, bewildered, he sat down. But in his chair he kept on wondering that he should feel so desolately strange, and yet, for all he knew, that he had lost more of the world than most men ever win, so curiously calm. And he was left unanswered and unsatisfied. There came no clearer meaning to him than had come before. The old abstraction was the best that he could find, the farthest he could go. To that was no beginning and no end. No end that he could reach. So he must learn to live the surest and largest life attainable in him. Would he divine the meaning of the dream and of the words that he had written without knowing why? On the sheets that he had bound up like a book and covered with red leather, there it was, there in his desk the record he had made, the spiritual plaything of his life. There were the words no eyes had ever seen, save his. There were the words that were not, made for the glory or for the gold. The pretty wife whom he had loved and lost had not so much as heard of them. They were not made for her. His love had been so much the life of her, and hers had been so much the life of him, that any wayward phrasing on his part would have had no moment. Neither had lived enough to know the book, albeit one of them had grown enough to write it. There it was. However, though he knew not why it was, there was the book, but it was not for her, for she was dead. And yet, there was the book. Thus would his fancy circle out and out, and out and in again, till he would make as if with a large freedom to crush down those underthoughts. He covered with his hands his tired eyes and waited. He could hear, or partly feel and hear, mechanically, the sound of talk, with now and then the steps and skirts of someone scuttling on the stairs, forgetful of the nerveless funeral feet that she had brought with her. And more than once, there came to him a call as of a voice, a voice of love returning, but not hers, whose he knew not, nor dreamed, nor did he know, nor did he dream in his blurred loneliness of thought what all the rest might think of him. For it had come at last, and she was gone, with all the vanished women of old time, and she was never coming back again. Yes, they had buried her that afternoon, 
under the frozen leaves and the cold earth, under the leaves and snow, the flickering week, the sharp and certain day, and the long drowse were over, and the man was left alone. He knew the loss, therefore it puzzled him that he should sit so long there, as he did, and bring the whole thing back, the love, the trust, the pallor, the poor face, and the faint way. She last had looked at him, and yet not weep, or even choose to look about the room to see how sad it was, and once or twice he winked and pinched his eyes against the flame, and hoped there might be tears. But hope was all, and all to him was nothing, he was lost. And yet he was not lost, he was astray, out of his life and in another life. And in the stillness of this other life he wondered and he drowsed. He wondered when it was, and wondered if it ever was on earth that he had known the other face, the searching face, the eloquent strange face, that, with a sightless beauty looked at him, and with a speechless promise uttered words that were not the world's words, or any kind that he had known before. What was it then? What was it held him, fascinated him? Why should he not be human? He could sigh, and he could even groan. But what of that? There was no grief left in him. Was he glad? Yet how could he be glad, or reconciled, or anything but wretched and undone? How could he be so frigid and inert? So like a man with water in his veins, where blood had been a little while before, how could he sit shut in there like a snail? What ailed him? What was on him? Was he glad? Over and over again the question came, unanswered and unchanged, and there he was. But what in heaven's name did it all mean? If he had lived as other men had lived, if home had ever shown itself to be the counterfeit that others had called home, then to this undivined resource of his there were some key, but now philosophy? Yes, he could reason in a kind of way that he was glad for Miriam's release, much as he might be glad to see his friends laid out around him with their grave clothes on, and this life done for them. But something else, there was that foundered reason overwhelmed it, and with a chilled, intuitive rebuff, beat back the self-cajoling sophistries that his half-tutored thought would half-project. What was it then? Had he become transformed and hardened through long watches and long grief? Into a loveless, feelingless dead thing that brooded like a man, breathed like a man, did everything but ache? And Viras a day to come some time when feeling should return forever to drive off that other face, the lineless, indistinguishable face, that once had thrilled itself between his own and hers there on the pillow, and again between him and the coffin lid had flashed like fate before it closed, and at the last had come, as it should seem, to stay with him, bidden or not. He were a stranger then, for drowsed awhile by some deceiving draught of poppied anguish, to the covert grief and the stark loneliness that waited him. And for the time were cursedly endowed with a dull trust that shammed indifference to knowing there would be no touch again of her small hand on his no silencing of her quick lips on his, no feminine completeness and love fragrance in the house, no sound of someone singing any more, no smoothing of slow fingers on his hair, no shimmer of pink slippers on brown tiles. But there was nothing, nothing in all that. He had not fooled himself so much as that. He might be dreaming or he might be sick, but not like that. There was no place for fear, 
no reason for remorse. There was the book that he had made, though. It might be the book. Perhaps he might find something in the book. But no, there could be nothing there at all. He knew it word for word. But what it meant? He was not sure that he had written it for what it meant. And he was not quite sure that he had written it. More likely, it was all a paper ghost. But the dead wife was real. He knew that, for he had been to see them bury her, and he had seen the flowers and the snow and the stripped limbs of trees, and he had heard the preacher pray, and he was back again, and he was glad. Was he a brute? No, he was not a brute. He was a man, like any other man. He had loved and married his wife Miriam. They had lived a little while in paradise, and she was gone, and that was all of it. But no, not all of it, not all of it. There was the book again. Something in that pursued him, overpowered him, put out the futile strength of all his whys and wares, and left him unintelligibly numb, too numb to care for anything but rest. It must have been a curious kind of book that he had made. It was a drowsy book at any rate. The very thought of it was like the taste of some impossible drink, a taste that had no taste, but for all that had mixed with it a strange thought cordial, so potent that it somehow killed in him the ultimate need of doubting any more, of asking any more. Did he but live the life that he must live? There were no more to seek. The rest of it was on the way. Still there was nothing, nothing in all this, nothing that he cared now to reconcile, with reason or with sorrow. All he knew for certain was that he was tired out, his flesh was heavy and his blood beat small. Something supreme had been wrenched out of him, as if to make vague room for something else. He had been through too much. Yes, he would stay there where he was and rest. And there he stayed. The daylight became twilight, and he stayed. The flame and the face faded, and he slept. And they had buried her that afternoon, under the tight-screwed lid of a long box, under the earth under the leaves and snow. End of poem. This recording is in the public domain.